Um, so Pastor Don has a big history with our church and with a lot of the Wesley Methodist churches up the Queensland coast here. He's been part of um, this group for such a long time and we thank him and it's a privilege to have him joining with us over the next two weeks. So right now I'm going to pray for Pastor Don as um, he begins this morning with us. Uh, loving God, Lord, you are a great and awesome God. There is so much we can be thankful for each and every day. But right now, Father, I just want to thank you for your servant, uh, Pastor Don, and be with him through this morning, um, through this reading now and through the message. Pray that your spirit be upon him and uh, fill this place that we may be open, our ears may be open, and we may hear your word and your message for us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a delight to be with you, as usual. <laughs> and uh, just have a look at Psalm 19, if you would. I want to have a look at the first few verses and the last few. So I'm just extracting key ones that fit with the message of the day. I want to talk about the significance of what the Bible teaches us, the Christian view of what God is like, because I have become more and more aware that in our culture there are lots of other ideas of what God is like as well, and I want to reaffirm what the Bible teaches us, but I'm just going to read from Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows his handiwork, day to day utter speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their sound has gone out throughout all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. And then down to verse 12, excuse me. <clears throat> Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from unintentional sins, from secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins and let them not have dominion over me. Then I will be blameless and I will be innocent of the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. May God help us in understanding his word when we come to It is a delight to be with you. I enjoy the opportunity of making new friends in our churches as well as interacting with people who, whom I've known over the years. And uh, as I was praying about the message to share with you, um, I have just completed a new book. It's gone off to the publisher this week. And uh, the first chapter, it's on leadership. You can make an impact. But I, the first chapter is dealing with what God is like. Because if we're going to lead in a Christian setting, it kind of helps if we know what God is like. And there are a lot of ideas out there that don't line up with the Bible. So I want to build on that. And so it's chapter one of the book, You Can Make an Impact, which I hope we'll have available within a month or so. But uh, the uniqueness of the Christian concept of God is where I want to go with that. And I'm going to step back a little bit further so it's not quite such a twist for me. Is that still okay, Jonathan, where I am now? No, it's not. <laughs> Go that away. I'm flexible. <laughs> How's that? Wonderful. Good. Right out. So uh, that's where we're going is to have a look at what is God like, our Christian concept of God. What makes Christianity different from the world religions? Is that a good question to ask in a world where a lot of other religious expressions are being recognized? And uh, the first one is that the founder is alive. Christianity is a relationship with a living person who lives inside of us by the Holy Spirit. It is not about rituals and codes. It is not about uh, rules and codes or rituals or resolutions. How many of us make some resolutions at the beginning of the new year? <laughs> and they generally don't last more than a week or so. 
but Christianity is not about rituals. I don't mean they don't have their place, and I don't mean that there is a place for standards that we live by based on what the Bible says, but that's not what makes us a Christian. You can keep all the rules and still miss out. That was the message Jesus had for the leaders of Judaism in his day. Christianity is about a relationship of knowing him. I heard one delightful quote where somebody said, well, they told me God was dead, but that's a surprise. I was talking to him this morning. He sounded fine. <laughs> but the bottom line is we are celebrating that Jesus came back to life. And I love that selection of the song that you just had about the just three nails and just three days reminding us that Jesus loves us so much and he has come back to live inside of his people by the Holy Spirit. So another facet of what God is like, and I'm giving you a string of them, is that he is a God who shows compassion. And I came across a delightful story of uh, a group of world authorities on the different religions, and they were meeting in England, and C.S. Lewis walked into the room and said, what's all the rumpus about? And uh, they said, oh, well, we've just been discussing what bit about Christianity, if anything, is uniquely Christian. As we look at the other religions of the world and we look at Christianity, what makes it different from the others? And C.S. Lewis came straight in and said, oh, that's easy. It's about grace. And uh, the other religions have got the eightfold path of Buddhism, the Hindu doctrines of karma, the Jewish covenant, and the Muslim code of law. But uh, Lewis says it's all about grace because only Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. God is not waiting for you and me to be good before he loves us. Is that reassuring? Any besides me? <laughs> I heard one teenager said, oh, I'm so glad Jesus came so that God could start loving us after the cross. I said, no, no, no. He has always loved us. God loved the world so much that he sent his only son. So God's love has been ours, our privilege from before we were born. And that is a marvelous, very timely encouragement in a world that tends to depersonalize us. So uh, Christianity dares to make God's love unconditional. He is a personal God who shows compassion. And I just put in a, a longer statement, the, the cry for mercy is there very clearly in the Psalms and the prophets alongside of God's patience with rebellious Israel through its history. And then came Jesus. And I love that conversation that Jesus had with old Nicodemus that evening. And I wonder whether Nicodemus came because it would be quiet at night or whether he didn't want to be interrupted or whether he didn't want to be noticed. But he came and he said to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Nobody could do these fantastic miracles you're doing unless God were with him. And after all the small talk and <laughs> the introductions, Jesus gets straight to it and he says, uh, I'm telling you very honestly, as someone is born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's something that is a process as radical as the process of a normal birth. Uh, God loves the world. That is relevant for every one of us in our own journey. There has never been a time, nor will there ever be a time, well, you will not be the recipient. I will not be the recipient of God's love. He has always loved us. Before the foundation of the world, God is love and God is loving people. So that's pretty encouraging stuff. But more than that, the concept of God is vastly different from the concepts of other faiths. For example, I've put up there 
a picture of the Buddha and there is the Eightfold Path, the various tribal religions, the various expressions within Hinduism of what God is like. Although it's not a personal concept, it's much more of a force concept. There's Baha'i and there is Islam. But you see, the study of the Bible reveals something very, very interesting. That the God who is a loving being is great enough and greater than our scientific guesses, and yet he's interested in the smallest bird. That is a fascinating thought, that when I think of the size of this vast world, planet, and the universe of which it is a part, the God who creates it all, and I've been finding that as I look at the experiences of my journey, so many of them seemed innocent at the time and that they shaped whom I became. Some of the um, conversations, I think of a teacher conversation that came when I was in year 11 that was unforgettable for me. And as I reflected back on it, I would never be the same after the, that teacher cared enough to say those hard things that I needed to hear. I think about the people along life's journey that God's allowed me to touch and encourage. For every one of us, there's this huge matrix of, in our journey, who did God give us as parents? Did we have any siblings? How close were they to us? What about the country where we live, the teachers that we had, the classes? All of these things contributing with God's plan, God's unique plan for each of our lives. I find that enormously encouraging. So, uh, and that is by contrast with the other religions of the world. Uh, and what's more, God cares about what happens in our lives. I had a chance to say good day to my mate John this morning and I discovered that he'd had an accident with a strap that broke or something and flicked up and damaged one eye very seriously. Isn't it reassuring that God knew about it and cared about it and was able to give you a circle of friends who could love you and be with you through the journey of the recovery? Trust God willing that it will all bounce back. But it happens to all of us, whether it's just an unkind comment somebody makes or whether it's a reassuring comment somebody makes. It, it's part of the blessing of a world where God is at work in all of our relationships. And I find that tremendously significant. So uh, he cares about what happens in each of our lives. You know, I talked to somebody and said, how's it going on the job front? Well, you know, since COVID, and you can guess the kind of scenarios that follow that. Whatever is happening in our lives, God knows and cares and wants to give us the strength to cope with it. So, if I'm talking about what makes the Christian faith unique, I need to touch on the fact that we are the people of the book. That is a very significant factor. For example, when Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians after the fall of, the Jer of Jerusalem, the Jews shifted their focus from the temple to their sacred book. And so we find that, and by the way, did you know that books were invented by Christians? Wanting to refer back to the scroll was so ponderous and slow, they figured a book with some pages would help. And here we are, we are a people of the book. And what we believe is coming out of God's book. Uh, that was very significant for me when I was preparing for ministry and I was aware of a denominational setting where I was very welcome, but they did not accept this book as being fully inspired. And I had to say, I'm, I can't serve under that flag. For me, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed is the uh, Greek word, and it's the basis for our doctrine and teaching, for reproof and correction, 
for training in righteousness that we as God's men and women will be perfectly equipped for what he wants us to do. We're a people of the book. Let me give you a couple of facts that I have found uh, very interesting in that regard. The archaeology archaeological support for the Old Testament is really quite incredible. The Dead Sea Scrolls, some of you have probably heard about the Dead Sea Scrolls and uh, they, the scrolls confirmed that the book and uh, how accurately it has been. Did anybody notice something up there? Come on, where are the school teachers? <laughs> My wife noticed it as soon as uh, she saw the slide. But uh, they put the, I'll come back to that, they put the scrolls in these jars and then they mixed clay up with um, saliva and they mixed a muddy solution and put it round the tops of each of the jars and hid them in caves. The Roman army was coming. This group in the monastery near the Dead Sea realised that their sacred scrolls might be confiscated or destroyed. And so they hid them in these scrolls about 67, 68, prior to the fall of Jerusalem in the year 70. And there they stayed for nearly 2,000 years. And what I find totally fascinating is one afternoon, a young Bedouin lad was trying to find one of his father's goats that were missing. And he looked up at the caves on the uh, uphill up like that. And he threw a rock up there to see whether or not the animal was hiding in the cave looking for some goodies uh, in the cooler location. And he heard a smashing like breaking pottery noise, how he decided that he'd go and explore it. And in there he found one of these jars had all been broken and one of the scrolls had fallen out. So he took it down to the marketplace in Tel Aviv and he said, look, I found this. Uh, is, does it have any value? And in God's amazing providence, just standing behind him was a, a, an archaeologist and he said, oh, I might be interested in it. And he heard the story of the discovery. That was to revolutionize Bible scholarship because prior to that, some of the scholars of the, where are we? The second and third, or the scholars of the 19th century said that the Bible was probably produced later. Suddenly here are the scrolls confirming the Bible that we have uh, in its Old Testament form. And uh, when I did some reading on it, I discovered, how many of you noticed the spelling mistake besides me? Come on. I put it there deliberately. Anybody need to know what the word is? Oh, we can all figure it out. The scribe simply accidentally reversed two letters. When we look at the accuracy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we've got 95% beyond any question, and the other variants are little spelling mistakes like that that don't change the meaning of the text. In other words, you can read it, and somebody may have misspelled a word, but it doesn't lose what the text was saying at that time. And that's very, very encouraging for us, I find. So, I've probably got another picky for you down there. Yes, and I will mention a book called Christianity for Skeptics. Some of you know that book, especially Keith and Heather. Uh, <laughs> but it's a really, really special book that talks about the whole issue of um, the reliability of the Bible, the certainty of the resurrection, and the other issues that flow from that. Welcome, friends. We're just uh, touching on some of the reliability of the Bible, if that gives you a quick window as to where we are. So, but similarly, archaeology supports the reliability of the New Testament. 
Um, that's a, a, a bone box, which they call an ossuary. And they have found one just less than 20 years ago. And it has inscribed on the outside, James, the brother of Jesus, the son of Joseph. That is hard evidence that there was a person named James and Jesus at the time of the New Testament. It's archaeological research. And ladies, I should add for your interest, being married to an archaeologist is a great plus because the older you become, the more valuable you are. <laughs> so, but uh, that's a fragment of John's Gospel that they found in a library. Somebody had taken these old manuscripts from the Middle East back to England and in the Rylands Library, somebody was digging over them and they picked this thing up. It's from John chapter 18 on one side and the next chapter on the other side. And here is a direct uh, sample of way back, the, John's Gospel is almost certainly the last book written. There's a fair bit of evidence that the rest of the New Testament was written uh, before the fall of the temple in 70. And John's Gospel, possibly the later, because they came to him and said, we've got Matthew, Mark and Luke, who tend to see it, they use the word synoptic, seeing it the same way, John, can you fill in some gaps for us, having been with Jesus? And so John added his gospel. But all of it, by the end of the first century, it, most of it written while people were alive who saw those things happen. If what the gospel said about the miracles of Jesus were not accurate, there would have been literature saying so, and there's none. So, i just give you a quick window on the number of copies of the manuscripts that we have. Um, here's the uh, author Thucydides writing 460 to 400 BC. You note, of course, it's counting down. Our earliest copy is 900 AD and the time span is 1300 years after the guy lived and we have eight copies. Aristotle, 384 to 322. Our earliest copy, 1100, 1400 years after he lived and we have 49 copies. Julius Caesar lived 100 to 44 BC. Our earliest copy is 900. The time span is 1,000 and we have 10 copies. Let's have a look and see how the New Testament compares with that. Written between 40 and 100 AD. Our earliest copy, about 125. That's being very conservative. That's only 25 years after the last bit was written and we have 24,000 copies. So when it comes to establishing the reliability of the New Testament text, we are not left to eight or 49 or 10. We are left, and there, is a multi, there are some in Greek, about uh, 5,000. There are some in Latin, some in Egyptian, and some in Syriac. But we can check one against the other because those old translations were made from manuscripts older than the ones we have now, from the scrolls that are new. Uh, yeah, I'll say it that way. So uh, the legend factor is drastically reduced when it's close to the event. There is good evidence that the Gospels have the mark of an eyewitness and were written in the lifetime of the people who saw those things happen. As soon as you get a long period after somebody is dead, then there's any amount of time to add legends and stories that no one can challenge because they weren't around either. But the New Testament was written during the lifetime of the people who saw those things happen. Very encouraging. Why is that relevant? Because when you and I open our Bibles, you can know that you are reading what the prophets wrote. 
This is not somebody's legend. This is real history. And uh, the more discoveries they are making, uh, the more we are reassured in that kind of area. So if it's possible for Jewish students to memorize the whole of the Old Testament, and they did, is it not possible that Jesus' disciples could have committed much more to memory than just what we have in the Gospels and passed it on accurately? If Jesus came to town and we came to hear him, do you reckon you'd jot down a couple of things that he said to tell your loved one or your family when you got home? Of course. And they used shorthand in those days. In fact, did you know that Matthew, as a tax collector, was used to taking shorthand? That's how they did it at the cabinet where they were uh, collecting taxes and people's names. So a lot of what Jesus said was probably converted to shorthand and they could refer back to that when they came to write their Gospels. Uh, it sounds like people would have memorised what Jesus said. You and I are dealing with an accurate record. And I note that the stories fit every age. Um, the cultural setting may be different, but the issues are still the issues people face today. There's David facing a giant. Do we face giants with the drug traffic and the liquor traffic and the power plays in our world and what's happening in the realm of politics and what's happening? Um, anybody glad they're not living in Afghanistan just now? Can we say, thank you, Lord, you've put in a country, us in a country where there's safeguards for our freedoms, amen, and, and praying for those dear ones, of course. David facing a giant, and then there's the tragedy of his sexual sin. Do you know there is not one hint in the Bible anywhere that excuses David's wrong behavior? Scripture makes it very, very clear that that violates God's priorities for relationships. And then we have the lovely story of Ruth being loyal to her mother-in-law, and then in God's amazing grace, finding a husband and ending up the grandmother of Israel's uh, greatest king. An amazing story. The gospel speaks hope. Jesus is a real person facing the issues you and I read today. We are a people of the book. And uh, I want to encourage you to continue to be memorizing scripture. You know, I can remember as a teenager when, it seems a long time ago, <laughs> but I can remember as a teenager on occasions, you know, there'd be a convention and I'd go out the front to make a fresh commitment and I still was discouraged with some areas in my life that were not all that I wanted them to be. I wish somebody had said to me, how much scripture have you memorized? Because the Bible says, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. If you want to be a more godly person, one of the things that will help you tremendously is memorizing scripture. And uh, for you young'uns, I want to encourage you, if you memorize it while you're young, you've got it. I can give you Clancy of the Overflow word for word, because uh, I learned it when I was in grade six. I'm glad for the scriptures I memorized back then and I'm wishing I'd done more of it. I am now consciously working each day of my life, upgrading my memory of scripture. I know that Christians have been put in jail for their faith in some parts of the world. If I end up in jail for my faith, what I have memorized is part of what I take with me. The songs that I sing and the scriptures that I memorize are things that no one can take from me. So what about the uniqueness of the Bible? That's called an anvil. Our generation knows what it is. Kids, the blacksmith would use that when he was shaping something made out of metal and he'd put it into the hot fire until it was red hot. Then he would put it on that thing and shape it with a hammer. It's called an anvil. And there's a true story of a very famous French king who wanted to destroy the Bible. 
And one of his very learned and wise um, staff said to him, Your Majesty, the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. And it's still there. It was written in three languages over 1,600 years by more than 40 authors from every walk of life on three continents in different moods in hundreds of controversial topics with consistent agreement. As one who's been studying this stuff at some length, there is no other volume anywhere on the planet that comes even close. When you are reading this book, you are reading something that will change you on the inside that will enhance and enrich whom you are becoming. It's tremendously important, uh, the value of memorizing the Bible. So, I thought I would just put in one little touch of prophecy. I could get camped here, but I'll be good and not do so. But how many of you remember hearing about the ancient city of Tyre? It was on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea, and Tyre was a large trading port, but the Bible has some amazing prophecies about Tyre. Uh, they were made around about 600 BC by Ezekiel, who went in the, there was an exile in 605, another exile in, 600, in 592, and a third one in 587-86. There were three different exiles. And the return which Daniel predicted 70 years later was 70 years after the first exile, exactly as predicted, the pagan king told the Jews they could go back and take all the sacred images. They even found the name Cyrus in their Old Testament to show King Cyrus that God was predicting. If God had a plan for a pagan king like Cyrus, do you think he's got one for us as his people? Amen? It is amen. So, but have a look. Here's the prophecies that were made. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar would destroy the city, and it was a kind of a metropolis like Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne would be today buzzing with life, traffic, all the rest of it, um, attacked by soldiers from many nations, he predicted that, and Alexander the Great, a couple of hundred years later, recruited soldiers from other nations for his army, exactly as was prophesied, and they th uh, the prophecy was that the debris from the city would be thrown into the sea. Can you imagine someone saying, they've smashed up the city, now they're going to clean up all the debris and throw it into the ocean? And yet that is exactly what was predicted and uh, it would never again be a centre of world trade or prosperity as it was. Uh, in fact, a bare rock with fishermen spreading their nets on the side. I have a picture of the fishermen spreading their fishing nets on the site of ancient Tyre. Isn't that amazing? But I thought you might be interested. There's a satellite picture of the town as it is today. And you can see where, oh, I should add, Alexander the Great, when he tried to attack, the old city was over here on the mainland. Alexander the Great um, wanted to attack the city, so he got his men to catch all of the debris from the city and throw it into this little gap between the island and the mainland to build a bridge so that his troops could get across to the, the island. Exactly as the prophet had predicted. The debris would be thrown into the sea. Never again. Now, there's a modern-day Tyre and the village that's related to it, but nothing like the world capital that it had been before as a centre of economic development. Here is a prophecy made in one era. A generation later, the first part is fulfilled. A couple of hundred years later again, the prophecy was perfectly fulfilled as had been predicted. Quite amazing. 
and there are prophecies that extend to today. Uh, the, uh, the Bible tells us that at the end of the age there will be earthquakes and uh, famines. Do we are aware of any of the food shortages around the world? And uh, not to mention uh, viruses and such like, and uh, wars and rumours of wars. The Bible has a lot to say about those things. And I just put a little summary there for you, false teachers. I was watching a resource just in this past week that talked about Christians who are fearful to people in our culture, fearful today. Some are fearful of whether they'll get the virus and die. Do you think that's a valid observation? There are some people who are very, very afraid. Secondly, some are fearful of losing their job. Am I sure that job will still be there next week? Some are also fearful of what the government's gonna do next. And some are fearful of what is happening with some of the nations around the world that may cast their eagle eyes on our great country of Australia. So there are different, there are different areas where people are afraid, but the Bible says at the end of the age, men's hearts will be failing them for fear. And it's the world in which you and I are living. But I thought I would just pop up a picture of Jerusalem and the Jewish flag to remind us that in 134, the Jews were kicked out of their holy city after a rebellion under a fellow named Akokba. At the close of that rebellion, Jews were forbidden to go into the city of Jerusalem. My grandfather was part of the charge of the light horse uh, against the German and local Arab machine guns and cannons. And they captured Beersheba and that was part of liberating Israel. When they rode into Jerusalem, every Australian soldier had taken off his hat. They saw it as a mission. They weren't just fighting a war. And that was the beginning of the liberation of the modern state of Israel that was completed in 1948 with the vote of the United Nations. In fact, Australia was the first country to vote for Israel to be a nation. But we do well to remember that this world is not going to end up as a radioactive rubble heap. Jesus is coming back. And you and I can be preparing our hearts and our lives for that wonderful day. Perhaps today, I teach various subjects for a Bible college and uh, I think most of the students pray for the second coming just the day before exams. <laughs> so, but uh, I want to touch on another aspect of Christianity being unique, not just that the founder is alive, not just that we have a book that is incredibly reliable, those things are true, but here's one, the Christian view of suffering is very different from any of the world's religions. For example, Christianity does not say that when something is happening in your life, you are being punished for it. Now, I do mean, not mean that we don't have consequences. We do stuff that's wrong. We will get some consequences. But I do mean that when stuff goes wrong, we ought not to be saying, what did I do wrong that I'm being punished? The Bible tells us that Jesus took the punishment for our sins on the cross. That is why the cross is so central in our faith. He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we should go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. Jesus' death on the cross, he was accepting the punishment for our sins. And I came across this quote, I think it was from E. Stanley Jones, the great missionary to South India, but I, regardless of who said it, it is profound. 
The other religions explain everything and leave it just as it was before. Christianity explains very little, but everything changes. Christianity explains very little. The Bible doesn't tell us why sad things happen in our life. We know there's the devil and we know that he is active in our world, in our day, today, making life difficult for us. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, said, I told you ahead of time there would be times of persecution. Friends, it's going to happen. You know, we need to get used to that reality. But having accepted that reality, we are still aware that God is with us in the challenges, in the lonelinesses, in the pain. And when something is happening that's going wrong in your life or mine, I do well to remember it's not punishment for wrong stuff I've done. It's the evil one beating on us. Is this making some sense? You know, come on, we're all there in different ways, whether it's pain. I am discovering something now I've got into my mid-70s. I thought Jesus would be back before this. But I discover that the last nail in the coffin of my pride has been old age. You know, there's three things that go with getting old. The first is you can't do all the stuff you used to. Secondly, you can't remember all the things you used to. And there's a third one. <laughs> so... But we do well to remember that God is a sovereign God and that he is allowing human freedom within this world as a part of his good purpose. Uh, some of you know I've got some smiling faces of some teenagers from high school camp a month or so ago. And one of the things I love to do with the kids is to remind them that in some parts of the world, the parent arranges the marriage for the kids. And I say to the kids, how many of you girls would like to have your parents deciding who you marry? How many of you appreciate the Christian concept that you have a freedom to choose in our cult culture? Amen? Oh, I wish you could see each other right now. <laughs> some people are going to get some sore ribs. <laughs> but as I look at that reality, that is coming from the Christian concept because the church is the bride of Christ. And if people could see how terrible hell is and how fantastic heaven is, they'd all want to go to heaven, not because they love God, but because they're afraid of the hot place. God wants us to be choosing to be part of the bride of Christ out of love for him, even if we are not as aware as we could be of all the goodies of the other side. How am I doing? Is that making some sense? It's worth thinking about. I watched those teenagers at high school camp with all of the games that they played, and man, they played some games, including some that were not on the program. <laughs> but there were the games that the kids played. There was times discussing profound ideas in their little groups and in the sessions. They were making new friends that they'd never had before. And I thought to myself, isn't that a lot like what heaven is going to be like? Now, I probably should pick on uh, Jasmine and um, Jonathan and say, do you, do you think of high school camp as a little foretaste of heaven? Um, possibly for the campers, not the team leaders. <laughs> but the truth is, when we get to the other side, we're going to make buckets of new friends. Amen? And we're going to learn some more stuff about God and about Jesus. And there'll be singing. Does anybody enjoy singing besides me? I love singing harmonies. You know, and, and you know, when I was at teacher's college, they let me be in a, a second bass. 
and I had, we had first and second soprano and first and second alto and first and second tenor and first and second bait, eight-part harmony. Pretty exciting, eh? What would heaven be like with 100-part harmony? Any musicians who can imagine the thought of all the blending of all those voices praising God? Wonderful thought. New friends, activities that we will enjoy. You know, heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see my Saviour's face. Heaven is a wonderful place. And God is letting every one of us choose whether we want to go, whether we want to love and be obedient to him. And I look at the story of Joseph, and I love the way in which Joseph, in so many ways, was given a hard time as a part of God's gift of freedom to the people that were in his life. You know the story of how his brothers betrayed him and cruelly sold him as a slave. Many of you will know the story of how Potiphar's wife, his first master, tried to seduce him and he said no, and he was put in jail for the very crime he refused to commit. And in the Psalms, we are told that he was tortured while he in jail and put his uh, hands in chains and his feet in stocks. Joseph suffered for doing what was right. Any encouragement for us along the way? Anybody get a hard time at work because they're Christian? But in God's providence, the day came when a couple of the guards had, or a couple of the fellow prisoners had dreams. And Joseph was able to interpret the, the baker's dream. No, wait on, the uh, butler's dream was first. You, every good story's got to have a butler. You don't know how that is, you know. <laughs> there was the butler's dream, but then there was the baker's dream. And both the dreams were perfectly fulfilled as Joseph had predicted. And two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. By the way, if the butler had remembered Joseph and let him go, would they know where to find him two years later? Of course not. God needed to leave him in jail for that two years to get some experience working with the public service. Now, I don't know about you, but I have tended to think that public servant is a kind of oxymoron. It's sort of a bit like military and intelligence. The words don't always seem to fit quite together. But in God's sovereign plan, Joseph was in the right spot when Pharaoh's messenger came and said, Pharaoh's had a dream. Can you interpret and Joseph had a promotion from being in jail to being the advisor to the president or Pharaoh as it was in those days. That's quite a promotion in one day. But God was in all of that story. And we read of how Joseph was able to protect God's people. And in God's sovereign plan, the Jewish families that came down, the sons of Jacob, that came down to Egypt, 70 of them, multiplied over the next 400 years to be a nation. But whereas they had begun to intermarry back in Canaan, nobody wants to intermarry with the slave people and therefore the purity of the group was preserved in God's wise providence. And then I just mentioned uh, that the lash uh, fitted in there somewhere because that made them well into, willing to leave Egypt. God was at work there because they weren't all sure they wanted to leave, especially when they got some tough times out in the desert. So when you look at the sovereignty of God, let us never, never, never forget Jesus Christ is Lord and he is Lord of history and nothing happens without his permission. That doesn't mean he smiles on all that happens. Scripture says he weeps with them that weep. 
and that includes Christians who are suffering for their faith. I don't just mean Afghanistan now, all around the world. But whatever is happening in your life as my, and mine, as a child of God, never, never forget, God knows about it, he cares, he weeps with us, precious in the sight of the Lord are the tears of his saints, and he can give us strength day by day. So, but all things, the Bible says, are working together for good. You, some of you may have seen the picture, that's the world's worst air disaster. Over 500 people perished in that aeroplane um, crash, for want of a better word. Oh, and one of the consequences of it, by the way, did you know you have to speak English to get a pilot's license? Came from that crash. The pilot of one of the aeroplanes misunderstood the instruction from the control tower and uh, his plane went out into the path of another aeroplane. But what I just added was the guy who missed the plane was glad later in the day. What do you reckon? And sometimes God lets things happen in our journey that we don't understand. Oh God, what did you let that happen for? And the Heavenly Father says, it's okay, it's okay. I'm looking after this world and I'm looking after my own in that context. But this is an encouraging thought for me. God doesn't want anybody to be forced to go to heaven. He doesn't want people forced to embrace the Christian faith. And so we come at times in our lives to various uh, decision-making moments, but we need to be sure that we have forgiven the hurts that we have experienced. And, uh, you know, when we think about the wedding and how God is preparing the church as his bride for the heavenly wedding, we do well to remember that part of our preparation is forgiving the people who've wronged us. You don't live long on this earth without some hurts coming our way. That's the world we live in. Welcome to the real world. But we are not, how many of you remember Lindy Chamberlain and Azaria and all that from about 25 years ago? Many of us remember that story? That dear girl lost her baby to a dingo. They chose to disregard the eyewitness testimonies which were all consistent and having been found innocent the first time they tried them a second time, she was found guilty and put in jail with hard labour for nearly four years until a hiker was finding a different trail in one of the mountains in Central Australia and there they found a baby's jumpsuit. And that was brought to their attention and Lindy was pardoned and given some mild compensation having had her marriage wrecked and all the rest of it. But I love the fact that that dear girl writes, when we don't forgive someone, we are renting them a room in our head and that is the most private space we have. And I have to say very specifically, Mr. Devil, it's not available. <laughs> you can't go and take me back into what happened back then because it's been forgiven. And I pop this slide up, especially for the teenagers who'll remember at camp, we take time to make a list of the hurts against me and the hurts against God that I've committed. And then we forgive the hurts that we have experienced. And then we come to God and ask for his forgiveness for our sins. If you have a look at uh, Matthew chapter 6, after what we call the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses as we... 
The Greek actually has the word have in there. It's a past tense matter. It should read, and the New International, no, the New Living Translation picks this up very well. Forgive us our hurts as we have forgiven those who trespass against us. That is what the Greek said as uh, it was written in the words of our Lord. Uh, we forgive as a step of obedience. And then we are ready to ask God to forgive us. That doesn't mean we feel like forgiving. When I reflect on someone who's given me a hard time, I don't feel like forgiving them. I feel like grinding them into the pavement and stomping a couple of times for good measure. Anybody can identify? <laughs> but I'm saying, Father, as an act of the will, I extend forgiveness. And the matter is closed. And I try to discipline myself not to be referring back to it. Um, one of the old uh, quips said, God has removed our sins and put them in the depths of the sea and put up a sign that says, no fishing. And we do well to do that with some of the hurts of our own journey as well. So um, I talked to you about the fact that girls get a chance to say no if they don't like the proposal. And God is not forcing people to go to heaven. And every one of us has a freedom to say no if we don't want to choose to have the Lord Jesus as our master. But there is a great blessing when we do. So, I'm nearly there for those of you who need some encouragement. Some of my friends bring a thermos and bickies when I'm preaching, you know, and just in case it gets a bit long. But I want to talk about this servant model of leadership. Because our Lord was really quite amazing at the Last Supper. And uh, he took a basin and washed the disciples' feet. And he knew he was God's son. He knew he'd come to earth to be the sacrifice for our sins. He knew that less than a week later, he would be on the cross on Calvary, dying for our sins. And then scripture says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so the church is to be a unique group, a unique family, where by love we serve one another and we find ways to show caring and communicate to others. And a Christian leadership, therefore, is going to be different from the leadership models of the world. I could elaborate, but I'm watching the clock. Now, I just thought, as the last area of the message, when we're talking about what makes Christianity unique, how many of you have heard the word Trinity? Hello? Are you aware that there are some religions that don't believe in the Trinity? It used to be the word triunity and they shortened it to Trinity. Mm. Anybody besides me find it hard to understand sometimes? Well, I have found that one really difficult, so I thought I would close off just giving you something I have discovered that at least helped me begin to understand it. One, when we look at time, it has past, present and future. Would that be, what do you reckon? Are they the same or are they different? They are the same because they're all a measure of time but they're uniquely different in that the past is yesterday, we cannot touch it. Tomorrow hasn't arrived, we can't touch that. All we have is the present. All three are different. And the triunity of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit are all God, but they are unique personalities or personas within the triunity. And so we find uh, 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 there's all three or there's none of them. You can't have the present without the past and the future. And by the way, for each one of us, God has given us our past 
as a way of equipping us to shape our future as we operate obediently to him in the present. So uh, they're different, yet they are the same. One plus one plus one doesn't make three, or is it one multiplied by one multiplied by one equals one? The triunity is totally unique in the concept of what God is like. And by the way, I don't, I don't have to understand what God is like. I can accept what he has revealed rather than dictating to my little conscience. But secondly, what about in the realm of time? of space, uh, length and breadth and height. And uh, we can look at that box there and you've got the length and the depth and the width. Are they the same or are they different? The answer is both. All three of them are measures of distance. But you can't have one without the other two on this planet, eh? And so we have again... Um, latitude, longitude, aeroplanes and things know those better. Uh, all three are there or none is there. They are different, yet they are the same. The doctrine of the triunity of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit is actually quite consistent with the fingerprints that are upon the created world in which you and I are living. So what does that mean for us? First of all, it means the Father says, I belong. Isn't our world craving for a place to belong? I was reflecting on this prayerfully as I prepared, and this is the last slide, second last, if you uh, need some encouragement. Reflecting on this question of belonging. There are teenage groups where kids get involved in gangs to have a place to belong. As I drive the highways of our land, every now and then I hear the roar of several motorbikes going past. But there's a, a belonging that goes with being part of that thing. More than any other, the family of God is a place where you and I can belong. You don't have to be perfect. You do have to be committed to God to be a meaningful part of the family. Visitors are welcome, but you need to get the maximum benefit. You become part and committed to a local unit of the family of God. The Heavenly Father says, I belong. God has brought us in Christ into the family of God. Secondly, the Lord Jesus says, I have value, I have worth. His death on the cross reflects the fact that he was dying for our sins. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and he's given us a ministry of reconciliation. Christ on the cross says, I have value as he dies for us. But I love the third one, the Holy Spirit says, I can make it. I won't ask you to put your hands up, but uh, if I said, who's facing some challenges this week, whether it's an interview with the doctor and a lump you haven't told anybody about, or whether it's the job front, or whether there's a teacher giving you a hard time at school, the truth of the matter is whatever you or I are facing in our world, the Father is going to enable us by the Holy Spirit to cope with whatever happens. Uh, we know the dove is gentle, but there's a power that comes with the Holy Spirit, which is totally awesome. And people are craving all three, a sense of belonging, a sense of value and worth, and a sense of the capacity to cope with the world in which God's placed us. So uh, we receive power, says scripture, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and that happens at our conversion. So, so what? First of all, he is alive and he is not silent. Is that encouraging? Secondly, 
We can trust the accuracy of the Bible. I've given you a quick rundown on the manuscripts and that stuff. Thirdly, everything that happens in your life and mine has a purpose. God is allowing it. One of the hardest experiences in my teenage years when I was confronted with the fact that I did not relate well in my loneliness, it was a preparation for leadership roles that God had for me in years to come. God was at work even in those painful moments. Everything has a purpose. Secondly, our sufferings are allowed to refine us. As you keep a sweet spirit and say, God's going to bring good out of this. Thank you, Lord, for the good that's coming out of what right now I don't like. There is a growing trust and confidence in God. What's more, you can say thanks in advance. I love that. Thank you in advance for the good that's going to come. When I don't see the good, all I can see is what's bothering me. But God has promised to bring good out of what he allows. We are invited to make choices to follow him and forgiveness brings the potential to forgive others and the godly life becomes possible. That is so grand. So grand. So... And the Trinity brings us great hope. The Father says, I belong. The Son says, I have value. And the Spirit says, I can make it. Now, I want to give you a moment just of silence. Sometimes preaching can kind of be full of words. But have a think about this last slide. Lord, you've spoken to me today. As a result, I'm going to stop letting that bully control my future. I forgive them before you and will stop referring to it. Maybe there's somebody here this morning or somebody who's watching on the uh, camera thing who has a hurt they need to leave behind. Father, I've been thinking about it. I want to close that motor off and forgive them before you. Secondly, maybe God has spoken to you about something that needs to be made right. Lord, I'm going to repent of that area. I'm going to ask your forgiveness because I'm sorry enough to quit. That may be someone here as well. And then I will not look at being a part of a small group so I can grow in my faith. That might be relevant for someone. Um, I'm feeling a possible tug toward the ministry. God is raising up those who will give leadership to his people in our day. And then I ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, and I'll tell someone who can pray for me, I want to take just 30 seconds of silence for you to be able to pray in line with any of those that are relevant for you. So let's take just a moment of silence. Our dear Heavenly Father, sometimes the clock ticks too fast and sometimes it's not fast enough. But you've spoken to us this morning and I pray that for each of us there will be that ongoing moment of rededication and recommitment of our lives to you. I pray your blessing on each person who's listening, your wisdom for the decisions of the morrow, your grace to accept the hurts, and your love to enfold our whole personality that we will be able to show your holy love to those around us. I pray those things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And God bless you, friends.